show. Today we've got a special live recording from Pepperdine's beautiful campus at Harbor. The Pepperdine Bible Lectures recorded in May of 2022, just a couple weeks ago. And the guest is Kristen Kobez Dume. Many of you asked if I'm going to be able to share these and my friends at Pepperdine were gracious enough to let me have this audio, and so I'm going to share it with y'all. Uh, if you aren't familiar with uh, Kristen Cobes Dumay, the author of Jesus and John Wayne, the the thing that I appreciate about her work so much is that she does the investigation into something that each and every one of us has to do. Every one of us must ask how the culture that we are in has infiltrated and affected the way that we understand. Christianity. This is a age-old problem where the greatest threat is not someone saying, oh, Jesus isn't real, doesn't exist, that's not true, it's all fake. The greatest threat is to co-opt Jesus into being a parrot for whatever issue you want Jesus to speak into. And we believe Jesus affects all areas of your life. Jesus doesn't want it just to be the Lord of your eternity, of your eternal, eternal retirement plan. Jesus wants to be the Lord of how you do money, how you do relationships, how you view sexuality. All these things Jesus demands to be Lord of. If we're not careful, though, the way that Jesus talks about those specific things can become ways in which outside voices can use the words of Jesus to perpetuate their own agenda. And so Kristen uh, does a great job of asking how the white evangelical church has been influenced by the culture within which it resides. And I think it's an important question, important conversation. It's uh, going to make some people very uncomfortable, as it has, and it's going to make some people very free because it speaks to the things that many have felt all along. They just didn't know how to articulate or, the, or they didn't have someone to put years of research into explaining what they already feel to be true in their heart because they, they just know something is off. And that's one of the reasons I really uh, appreciate what she's doing. And I think every one of us needs to do a ruthless internal audit of the way that we are tempted to make Jesus say what we want. And I think it's uh, I think it's Annie Diller who talks about, we know that we have created God in our own image when God hates all the same people that we hate. And I think the inverse is true. When, when God loves all the things that we love and God likes all the stuff that we like, we know we've created God in our own image. Because in the very beginning, God created humanity in God's image, and we have tried to do, do the very thing that God has done for us. We've tried to return the favor and make God in our own image. And so we need to always be asking this question. And so that's why I'm excited for this conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, here it is, Kristen Cobes Dumay from Harbor 2022. <laughs> She has written a book that some of you may have, may have heard of, Jesus and John Wayne. How many, how many of you Yes? Okay. Raise hands. You guys have read the book. You know who she is. So, uh, do we need a full introduction? I know. I think we can just jump right in. Jumping right in? Um, yeah, I think it sounds like I'm notorious enough. We can just... <laughs> when, when you walk into a room like this, you're notorious. Yeah. How does that, like, what is your feeling walking into a room of... I mean, first of all, it's, it's a huge honor, right, to, just to meet so many people. And, and the, the book came out almost two years ago, and it, it's been a wild ride. 
but it's been it's been so good just to to have incredible conversations and to meet so many people from the body of Christ uh, who who are really trying to to, to be obedient to, to be faithful. So so that's awesome. That said, when I do walk into a room, I'm never quite sure uh, if, if, <laughs> if people uh, think that I'm uh, helpful in that respect and being obedient uh, and faithful or if I'm seen as an enemy. But I will say, despite what you might see on social media, uh, my the, the, the experience that I've had with like 100 to 1 has been um, really goodness and honestness and hospitality and we're having some hard conversations so that's been really really amazing mm-hmm. we'll vote afterwards if uh helpful or heretic we'll, just, we'll decide after but the churches of christ there's a little love for the churches of christ in the book reference um, but you're not from the churches of christ i am not okay first of all what, do you know how to do like octal singing are, are you gonna I know I'm terrible. I would never know how to do that in front of a whole crowd. Um, actually, I do have a choral background, but we use mostly instruments. Uh, but yeah, you know, I didn't grow up in. I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, so we have organ uh, accompaniment. We don't do the whole praise team thing, at least not in my Northwest Iowa uh, Christian Reformed Church. So no, but not Churches of Christ. But uh, you know, it's 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 a it's an amazing tradition you guys are part of, and I think a really important tradition as a broader uh, uh, in the broader context of American Christianity. Right? So you're reformed because no one's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so the Church of Christ, the reform, there's kind of a like pseudo connection to the evangelical world. Yeah. Um, it's not it, it, after there was an election in 2016. Yeah, I wasn't worried about it. But I had a woman from our congregation, a black woman who walked up to me after church, and she said, just very honest, uh, she's been a part of church for years, wonderful woman, and she looks at me and goes, are we evangelical or not? And I was like, um, I don't know, let's ask a historian. Oh, what, my what? You know, so I, apologies to you all, I did use that adjective in Jesus and John Wade uh, when I talked about Pepperdine in the context of uh, the Freedom Forum, this is a big thing that happened on this campus in the 1960s, uh, and when Barry Goldwater came to speak here. And there's a picture from that event, or of, of a um, of publicity for that event in the book, and uh, shout out to the archivists here at Pepperdine who've been amazing in procuring that and in, in making that uh, available. Uh, but I really struggled with that. Like, how do I describe Churches of Christ? How do I describe Pepperdine in this broader evangelical world? Because I know that many folks in the Churches of Christ would not self-identify as evangelical. But I also knew as a historian that the role that Pepperdine was playing, and particularly this Freedom Forum in Southern California in the 1960s, was a part of this broader evangelical world. And, uh, and so the, as, a, as a member of the Christian Reformed Church, I have the same kind of relationship to evangelicalism. I did not identify as an evangelical growing up. I still don't identify as an evangelical. I'm frequently called an evangelical in the media. And I um, and when I'm asked by interviewers, that's usually the, the question and answer that gets cut from an interview because it's just so long, uh, my answer to it. Uh, because, like I said, I don't identify as evangelical. My, I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church identifying against 
American evangelicals. We were we're we are a Dutch immigrant uh, tradition. My mom was an immigrant from the Netherlands. My dad is a theology professor. Wrote his dissertation on Abraham Kuyper. So we have our own folks in our tradition, and we thought that we were very different from American evangelicals and much smarter than them. <laughs> but, um, and at the same time, the Christian Reformed Church is a member of the National Association of Evangelicals, and so you could put me in that, um, in that category. But more importantly, even though my theology didn't come directly from evangelicalism, I grew up in a small town in Iowa with one bookstore, and it was a Christian bookstore. So all of my, my birthday gifts, graduation gifts, wall plaques, you know, music, you know the wall plaques, uh, it, it all came from evangelical spaces. I grew up thinking, being told, really, that listening to secular music on the radio Top 40 was sinful. So I only listened to Christian music, cassette tapes. And so I was, it was immersed in this evangelical popular culture, even though my tradition claimed to be something distinctive. And I would say in the last 20 or 30 years or so, the influence of this popular consumer culture of evangelicalism has really swamped the Christian Reformed Church and I think many other denominations, so that now I would say most Christian Reformed churches are de facto evangelical. You just talked about um, kind of this bigger thing. I think elsewhere you do see uh, the language of the evangelical industrial complex. Yeah, yeah, that was, I did not coin that, uh, but it, it has, I think it's, it's accurate. Um, so, you know, what is it to be an evangelical? And that's actually one of the most important scholarly interventions that my book makes if you're interested in historiographical kind of nerdy conversations, which is most scholars define evangelicalism according to a kind of theological uh, beliefs. And so there's a thing called the Bevington Quadrilateral, which um, your eyes are going to blaze over at this point. Uh, a historian of British evangelicalism came up with this four-point definition of evangelicalism. So to be an evangelical is to uphold the authority of the scriptures, or biblicism, also conversionism, this born-again experience, and um, a crucicentrism, the centrality of the cross of Christ, and then activism, so you're acting out of these beliefs. And when I first started writing Jesus and John Wayne, I fully intended to just drop that four-point definition, this is what an evangelical is, and then go on and write my book, because that is what every other scholar of evangelicalism did. And then at a certain point, I realized this rubric does not capture what I'm describing. And um, so instead of offering a definition, I tried to describe it. And then my first clue, and I think the most important clue, that that was not sufficient was that the vast majority of black Protestants in this country could check off all of those boxes. But the vast majority of black Protestants who could check off all those boxes do not identify as evangelical because they know that there's so much more to being an evangelical than checking off those boxes. And so really what I try to do in the book is examine, you know, what does it mean to be evangelical? Where are the boundaries drawn? You know, the fact that I can check off those boxes or that I confess the Nicene Creed or I come from a very confessional tradition um, counts for nothing in terms of how the Gospel Coalition defines who is welcome in the Gospel Coalition. Gospel Coalition, okay. Uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> My goal here is to make this as uncomfortable as possible. We're eight minutes in. We're getting close. Um,
one of the things that, uh, if anyone follows you on social media, has experienced is the way that you've had a great deal of interaction with people, including the Gospel Coalition. Uh, I'd say ladies and gentlemen, but let's be honest, it's just gentlemen. Um, <laughs> don't encourage me, guys. Um, just kidding, don't be the monster. Um, so you've interacted with a lot. Um, you write this book, it comes out two years ago, you've been working on it for, what would you say like, you started the idea? I started the idea more than 15 years ago, actually, yes. in 2005, 2006. Uh, did a year and a half research, set it aside, pulled it back out in October 2016. So you have decade and a half working towards this. Yeah. The book comes out, there's a great deal of connection to so many of us, mm -hmm. but there's also some people who are less than pleased with the subject matter in the book. Have you found yourself talking about a subject matter that in your original intention for the book is kind of outside of it, like a, an unexpected uh, talking point that you go into a lot? Yeah, you know, I first I had no idea what to expect about uh, in terms of reception of this book. My publisher's lawyer, um, who gave it a thorough uh, <laughs> legal review, uh, we went through fine-tooth comb, um, uh, warned me before the book came out to expect vicious trolling, and I got some advice for how to really lock things down and. Um, so I didn't know what to expect. When the book came out, we were, it had the amazing opportunity of having it kind of yeah, introducing it to the world via morning edition on NPR. So it was kind of an all at once thing. It was out in the world. Within a couple of days, I started getting letters from readers who, um, and I was expecting a whole lot of hate mail. I get almost no hate mail. People don't, are very surprised I'm not lying about this. Um, but it, I get so many letters just from people saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is the story of my life. Um, and thank you for helping me to see. I never understood how all these pieces fit together. Right? These are the letters I get every single day. Two years out, still get sometimes two, three, four, five a day. Um, so, so that's the, the, the reception that, um, that's most immediate to me. But then you see on social media, uh, you know, that's where you see some of this, this pushback and it tends to garner a lot of attention because it's very entertaining to watch this all go down. Um, it's entertaining to be a part of it too. Um, but I, I think that what I didn't expect was, so it's a, it's a history book, right? I, I published this with a secular, you know, secular a, a New York trade publisher. Um, my audience was not specifically evangelicals, although definitely included them, but it was it was beyond that and is a work of academic history. And it, it draws on all sorts of peer-reviewed academic studies. And so my initial audience in my mind was those people. Like, <laughs> I want to make sure I get this right. And um, what I, I realize now is the book is, is doing so much more than I thought it could do, and it's getting into the spaces that most need it. But now the questions that are coming to me are largely theological ones, uh, which, you know, I wrote this, I, I identify as a Christian, I'm very happy to talk about my personal faith, to talk about my beliefs, um, but not in a way that either validates or invalidates my historical research, that it is a work of scholarship, and if you don't like what is in there, you should, you know, not just attack me or question my faith or call me a wolf or, you know, say that I'm, I'm um, you know, the devil's daughter, but um, <laughs> but you know, is this true? Is this true? 
And, and then how do we make sense of this? And if you don't like my interpretation, then how do we grapple with this evidence that is in front of us? So I, I think that, yes, I was not prepared to have my, my personal beliefs kind of on display, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I, I'm, I'm very open about, I am a, a you know, confessional Christian, fairly traditional in terms of you know, the, the historic creeds and confessions of, of, of the church. Um, but I just, I thought I'd be more out there as a scholar than not as a believer. So you're I, I, identifying as a historian because that's what you are, but people criticize you uh, as though you are presenting as a theologian. Yes. What do you think the difference of a historian and a theologian would be? Yeah, you know, this is not a book of theology, and uh, a lot of people, <laughs> one of the frequent, you're not so frequent, but a, a complaint that pops up from time to time is, why are there no Bible verses in <laughs> um, and I'm glad you guys could laugh and not say, yeah, right. Um, but also. <laughs> My friend Josh Graves is the same person about his sermons. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and then also, um, but why didn't you tell us what to do? Uh, right, where's the fix for this? And um, as a historian, we're really good about at, at saying what went wrong, um, but it's not necessarily our strong suit to say what we should do going forward. We can say what we probably shouldn't do, right? And in, in um, I, I thought a lot. I, I teach at a Christian university, so I've thought a lot about how to how what it means to be a, a Christian and a historian. I keep coming back to this uh, virtue of of wisdom or prudence. And I think that that is absolutely key for what historians do uh, and how we can contribute to the body of Christ and how we can help theologians do their work better. And so one thing that we can do as historians is, uh, first of all, show how um, things have not always been the way they are now. And once we set that up, then we can, we can become more curious about how they became the way they are now. And then we can, when we see that process, that gives us better eyes to see and, or to ask, is, are our practices, are our values right now actually aligned with the teachings of the scriptures? Amen. Or have we embraced uncritically a lot of cultural allegiances, maybe even political agendas, that have been packaged and sold as Christian, and sometimes as the only way to be Christian. And we have just so embraced them that we have ended up distorting the gospel of Christ. give this history to church leaders who are going to interpret the scriptures in different ways, to theologians who are going to say, yeah, oh, you know, my, um, my kind of default opinion on this, where does that come from? And then this, this virtue of, of, of prudence, that history can help us to see uh, and showing us how things got to where they are now. It can also help us to discern um, that the ends, uh, the, the means that we are using to pursue ends uh, of justice, of love, of faithfulness, that they are in fact, that the means are in fact conducive to those ends. And that they aren't in fact undercutting 
the, the, the ideals that we have, our aspirations to live more faithfully, more lovingly, and more justly. And that's what historians can do for the church. I don't think historians usually get any amens while they're talking. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> the end of your book has the line, uh, what has been done can be undone. And I know you've talked about this much where you didn't want to even add that little modicum of hope at the end. And I think modicum is a generous description of that. It's like six, six words. Um, but your editor made you put that in. They, they forced you to do that. You naturally didn't want to add anything about hope. So let me ask you a question, because I know you get asked this a lot. Um, but they ask you, like, okay, what can be done? How can we fix this? How can we change this? I, I want to go back to like underneath that. You didn't want to put that in in the first place. What was the impulse that made you not want to put that in there? Yeah, so, um, so the, the backstory here is that uh, we were wrapping up the book, and it was incredibly, my, my publisher had moved up the submission date by four months with only eight months to go, so it was, if, if you're a writer, you know how, how terrible that is. And uh, so I was thinking 18-hour days of writing, and I sent my family away for two weeks to, to get this thing done, and it was because they knew it needed to be out at a certain time in advance of the 2020 election. And, and so it was incredibly intense, and I thought we were pretty much good to go, polishing a few last things, and, and then my, my editor wrote me and said, Kristen, this book is really depressing. <laughs> and I wrote back, I was like, I know. <laughs> and then he wrote back, and was like, no, like, this is actually a problem. Oh, did you think that was a compliment? I, I just, I mean, what do you do? Like, it was an observation. Um, and then it didn't come with a request, it was just an observation, but then the request came. Like, no, you can't do this to your readers. Uh, you can't. Uh, this is violence to your readers. You, you have to leave. And this is not like a Christians are hopeful. I don't even know the religious background of my editor at all. This was just a, a like humanity for the sake of humanity. <laughs> um, so that's when I said, okay, let me let me look it over. And I spent an afternoon time that I did not have to look over the whole manuscript again and see what what can I what can I offer here. And then I wrote back and said, I've got nothing. I mean, this is this is not a good story, and this does not end well. Um, and and he said, okay, I respect that. And then the next day he wrote back. He said, Kristen, just give us anything. And, and that's when I gave him this last sentence. That last sentence, and um, I felt super sheepish to send it off because it, it felt so insufficient. What was once done might also be undone. Um, and it is insufficient in some ways. Because early on when I was writing this, I think, actually I know, because back in 2006, I wrote in my reappointment materials at Calvin, I was already starting this research project, and I just uncovered a few weeks ago um, these, the, my statement of faith and learning from 2006, where I said, so I have this new project, and I think it could be important, and it's about evangelical masculinity and militarism, and I think it could help the church be more faithful and more scriptural um, in these areas. When I picked it up again in 2016, and when I got back into that research, I, uh, I abandoned that plan. Because what my research showed me was just how deeply embedded these um, values are. And I thought, this is not going to change. So I just need to testify. I just need to tell the truth here and, and leave it at that. Um, but what was once done might also be done is also true. And I think for evangelicals in particular, they have had such a sense of, um, of that their values are, quote-unquote, timeless, right? And God-ordained, 
traditional, has so much power in evangelical spaces. But historians can show you, more often than not, that what you think is traditional is actually a rather recent origin. Um, and, and again, just open things up and, and, and get you to ask, is this in fact faithful to the word of God? And that's where um, I've seen the book do that. I have absolutely seen that. So it is true, I do have more hope uh, now than when I finish the book in that I see that some people are willing to reconsider uh, the truths that have been handed down to them. And I've seen people do that with uh, incredible courage and resiliency. I'm still a historian and I'm still a pessimist, and so I have to add <laughs> that, and I'm a Calvinist, right? Um, <laughs> so I have to add to that. While I see a lot of individual courage and individual uh, change, even repentance, I see very little institutional change across evangelicalism. And I'm talking churches, I'm talking organizations, I'm talking these networks and Christian colleges, universities. There are such pressures. Not <laughs> such pressures, such pressures from donors, from constituents to maintain the status quo. And when people are speaking out against some of the distortions of scripture, some of the distortions, these cultural applications, more often than not, they're, they're picked off. They're pushed out, they're burned out, and so the institutions continue to maintain the status quo and, if anything, become more reactionary. So you're not optimistic as you're researching the masculine, uh, militarism? Militarism. It's a weird word, and yeah. masculinity. Yeah. Can you give a thumbnail definition for what you mean by those, and then let's talk about how they're so people entrenched? Yeah, so militarism uh, and closely related militancy. When I first started researching this, this was back in the early years of the Iraq War, actually. And it was because students in my history class had brought uh, to my attention, I just lectured on Teddy Roosevelt, uh, because I really wanted to show my students how gender worked in history. So, so I guess we'll start with masculinity. Uh, and what do you mean when you just said that? Oh, I didn't mean that you were where it was a little bit more of a domination 
of controlling and of asserting power over dependence, and by dependence they meant women, children, and enslaved people, and so it's more of a culture of honor. But that too was not the original. When evangelicalism first came to the American South, it disrupted that culture of masculinity and honor, and only over time uh, was it kind of brought under that. So anyway, American history, very interesting. In the early 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt, you have this muscular Christianity that takes hold. Anyway, I was lecturing on that because I wanted to show my students how ideas of masculinity change over time and how they are linked to religion, but they are also linked to race, to social class, to changing economic systems. They're, they're linked to foreign policy, to American empire, right? Um, the Rough Riders, Roosevelt, anyway, perfect example. And that's when students of my class um, came to me and said, uh, Professor Domain, there's a book that you've got to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. <laughs> Sounds like you know it well. <laughs> and I, I opened the book, I uh, went down to Family Christian Bookstore down the road, bought a copy. Um, and I opened up, there's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt right up front. And I saw what Eldridge was passing off as Christian manhood. God is a warrior God. Every man has a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. It was taken more from Mel Gibson's movie Braveheart than it was from Scripture. <laughs> Not even joking. And, um, and that it reminded me so much of um, what I saw in what scholars had already pointed out, how masculinity was linked to power, to whiteness, to American empire, to race white supremacy in the early 20th century. So this was early, early years of the Iraq War. All these statistics were coming in showing how white evangelicals, more than any other group of Americans, were enthusiastic supporters of the Iraq War, preemptive war in general, more likely than any other Americans to condone the use of torture. And I just asked, what might one of these things have to do with the other? So the idea that the essence of being a Christian man is being a warrior and fighting, and fighting because God is on your side, how might that shape your understanding of masculinity? How might it shape your understanding of Christianity and ultimately of Jesus? Can you say one nice thing about Braveheart? <laughs> I love the soundtrack. <laughs> so you study this, and you come to the conclusion that manhood is more connected to these modern depictions of masculinity than anything more substantial uh, in terms of a theological depth. And you end up pessimistic when you finish the book that it's ever going to change. And then you say the last two years, you become more optimistic. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say pessimistic that it is ever going to change because there's it, it will change, right? Yeah. Will it change soon, right? That's it. And, and could I help bring the change? That's where I was more pessimistic. Could any of us disrupt this? It just okay. seems so deeply embedded. Yeah. Um, and now, um, I don't know. I don't know. Because we see, we definitely see. I think that um, my book, uh, the, the work of a friend of mine, The Making of Biblical Womanhood from Beth Allison Barr, other historical works, uh, works on um, like Jesse Curtis, The Myth of Colorblind Christians. These are Christian historical or Christian historians who are looking at the history of the church and, and trying to bring exactly this. Like, what, where, where are these ideas of race coming from, these ideas of femininity, of authority, and, and so on coming from? I think that that, 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 that gives people. Um, 
words to use. It, it gives people a framework to understand things that maybe they were already feeling somewhat uncomfortable with. You know, like, is this really the way to be a Christian man? Is this really the posture that Christians ought to take? Um, you know, it, it, are our teachings on gender and authority, and particularly how power plays into that, are those really deeply scriptural? Um, or do we need to look at that? So, so all of that, yes, um, change is possible and change is happening. Um, and at the same time, we're also seeing a backlash, as, as is often the case in, um, in American history, certainly. A, a backlash from other Christians, from other corners of, of the church, to really suppress some of these questions, some of these changings. You see the anti-CRT movement that has just blown up with, um, uh, it's been fascinating for me as a historian to watch that happen. Uh, kind of in real time, and the um, mischaracterizations of scholarship, the mischaracterizations of fellow Christians um, in that space, and to see how effective it is in really shutting down these conversations of what does it mean to pursue justice and to love kindness and to live together as a body of Christ. So, yes, there's, there's change happening. There are really good conversations happening. There's also a pretty ruthless backlash right now. And a lot of Christian pastors, just ordinary folks in the pews, and Christian scholars are really getting hit hard by fellow Christians right now. You're obviously one of the people who's getting hit hard. Uh, people have uh, no small amount of uh, comments to share your way about how they disagree with, with um, what you think. Um, and you find it engage with that for the most part online. There are times it seems like you, you want to say this is too far. What makes you say in those moments, hey, this is too far? And what is like the impulse behind that that makes you want to thwart that? So I, um, I usually welcome the chance to have conversations with my critics. And I think that social media has a, a lot of bad things, certainly. Um, I won't list them all, but uh, one of the good things is it is democratizing. In, in a way that I, just by tweeting, and when I started, like when this book came out, I had very few followers. I was there mostly just to watch and to listen. And, and then as I started sharing some of the kind of testimonies about the book, what happened is that more um, people recognized their own stories in those kind of testimonies and then started following. And a, a community was formed, a kind of virtual community of people saying, this is true. This is my experience. And so that um, is, is how I developed a you know, quote, quote, platform there. Um, but I'm still, I mean, I'm a scholar, I'm a historian, I'm, I'm not an influencer um, by, um, by training, certainly. And so it's always a little. Well, what training do you have as an influencer? I mean, um, yeah, I just, so, I, so I'm still kind of like figuring out what is actually happening here particularly in terms of my role on, on social media. But one thing that it does do is it empowers people who otherwise had very, uh, really, no voice. I mean, I, I couldn't take on the Gospel Coalition. I couldn't take on the SBC without Twitter. But with Twitter, I can. And it's really crazy. That, and so it's incredibly disruptive right now. This is a, this is a disruptive moment, and that's why we're also seeing the backlash. And I think a lot of the, the people who have held power traditionally in these organizations, and it should not be underestimated, the power that something like the Gospel Coalition
Coalition wields. As a website, as a conference, as a network, and it is global, right? And how they define boundaries of who is Christian and who is not, what is acceptable and what is not, incredibly powerful. I do not rival them in terms of power, but I can publicly put on display what they are doing and how they are doing it. And I can do that when I'm asked, I identify as a confessional Christian, right? From a historic tradition of American Christianity that is not evangelical or not historically, but still little orthodox, right? And so um, when I, so I think it's fascinating. I think it's actually, I, I'm a teacher at heart, right? I, I teach. And so I will put threads on, this is how historiography works. This is the historical method. And, I, and this is something I can bring to the church. All that's great. When the pushback comes in a way that is um, not just harsh, but uh, really mean-spirited, when other people who are in my orbit are drawn in and are harassed or treated as without proper dignity, um, who are um, who are smeared publicly, that's when I think this has gone too far. That's when I really try to step in and say, enough is enough. Like, the dehumanizing language, when I was called a wolf, and I, I've been called a wolf a number of times in these circles, uh, I mean, at first I was like, well, whatever, you know? Um, <laughs> it was kind of funny. And then the wolf memes started coming, and, um, but then I thought, well, wait a minute. This is, this is dehumanizing language. And my outside field, so I'm a US historian, focus on religion and gender, but my outside field in graduate school was on 20th century Germany. Uh, I've lived in Germany, I've taught, I was a research assistant for a scholar who, who writes on the German Christian movement, um, Doris Bergen, Twisted Cross, and I know that the first step towards um, great evil in terms of genocide, courses on the history of genocide, I took courses on the historiography of evil, evil in history, first step is dehumanization. Right. And that's where I draw the line. And I will point that out and I say, you know, take on my ideas, say that you don't like me, by all means, you know, air your grievances, but stay away from the dehumanizing language, because I'm safe, I'll be fine. Um, but when that then ends up getting deflected and onto other folks who are more vulnerable than I am, um, and when it becomes kind of our normal expected discourse among Christians, that historically speaking here can lead to very dangerous outcomes, and it certainly is not befitting of members of the body. safe, but others won't. What do you think makes some safe and not others not so much? Uh, so I say that in part because I, um, so I'm white, very white. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm marrying cisgender, heterosexual woman, have tenure at a Christian university that supports my work. Um, and now I have a degree of power that I did not have even a couple of years ago. 
Um, and so I have plenty of options, and I have a public presence, and there is uh, safety in having that public presence. So all of those things make me think that I'm not a particularly vulnerable person in this moment. Uh, whereas other people, because of the color of their skin, because of their, their socioeconomic status, because of their uh, sexual or gender identity, um, this is a, a more difficult time, certainly, and there are just people who are more vulnerable than I am. You were you constantly referred to yourself as a historian. You just mentioned a second ago that on Twitter you could say this is how the historical method works. Um, why do you think you need to keep reminding us that you're a historian and how a historian functions is different than the person who needs to have Bible verses and everything they say? Uh, I, I love this question. Okay, so here's how historians do our work, right? We, we do a ton of research, years and years of research goes into a book like Jesus and John Wayne. And I had three full-time, well, for summers, full-time research assistants, students at Calvin, phenomenal students who, who helped me do the research for a book like Jesus and John Wayne. And I would, I would send them out, and I have another team for my next book. Um, but here are the instructions I give out. I, I keep, we meet regularly and say, here's what I'm seeing in the sources. Here are the themes I'm seeing. Here's, here's how I think this chapter is going to take shape. Um, so bring me material on that, but extra bonus points if you bring me material that challenges that framework, because that means I'm getting something wrong, and I have to figure out how to make sense of the contradictory evidence, right? That's how this, I did not start, I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding if you've read Jesus and John Wayne, that introduction hits kind of hard, right? Boom, like, here's what we know, and all these, like, pretty bold conclusions. All of that was originally my conclusion. Um, editor, blame the editor, uh, he, he told me that uh, just a few weeks before I got the other email saying, okay, this is, a, this is all really great stuff, Kristen. I want you to move it all into the intro and just come up with something else to the conclusion of the book. And I thought, ooh, uh, like, those are all hard-earned conclusions, right? I worked my way through this evidence, through this analysis to get there. And he's like, nope, this is trade publishing, put it right up front. I said, okay, I trusted him in that. I'm glad I did. It makes for a very powerful punch right up front. You know what you're getting. But everyone saw people misunderstand and think that I just came up with all that stuff. I mean, and they aren't looking at the footnotes. Like, there's a ton of footnotes for that intro and some very long ones um, with survey data. But um, and I just came up with this, and then I'm telling a story that that, that proves my point. It's, it's the reverse, right? You're just, like a wash in all of this evidence, and all historians have to sift through which evidence matters to the story I'm telling. There are always omissions, uh, and then every single historian, no matter how objective they are going to present themselves, we all craft a narrative to make sense of what we see. His, the historical discipline is about making arguments with evidence, and there is no such thing as an objective historian. So, you know, I get that she has an agenda or she's biased or like in, his, in the historical profession, like we are all biased. We are all subjective. Like we write books about how subjective we are, right? Um, and that's okay. The, the, the historians you have to be suspicious of are the ones who don't acknowledge their positionality, where they're coming from, how they're getting their questions. It doesn't matter, in a sense, where you're coming from. It doesn't matter your, um, your race or your gender or your theoretical background in terms of the validity of your work. 
because we should, we should welcome conversation on all those fronts. And then we have processes for saying, did you ignore evidence that runs counter to your thesis here? Did you misconstrue any of the evidence? And I had early readers, uh, one somewhat prominent conservative evangelical complementarian man who became one of my earliest defenders, actually. Um, and he said, hey guys, I had some questions when I read this book, and um, so guess what I did? I looked at her footnotes. And then I went and I tracked down some of those sources, because some of the, the pieces are available online. And the historical you know, New York Times articles on Billy Graham and the Vietnam War, just a couple clicks, you can read them for yourself. And he said, not only did she get the story right, she did not misconstrue this, the context supports what she said, and guess what, there was a whole lot more in some of those sources that she didn't include that could have made it look even worse, right? And that's how we historians work. So yes, I've crafted a narrative here, I'm making some pretty powerful arguments, but if you, if you want to discredit it, you have to go to the sources and say, did she get that right? Is this actually the story that the sources are telling? I'm arguing that, yeah, it is. It's holding up really well in academic spaces. And then are there any other ways that you can legitimately interpret this evidence? And that's what we do all the time in, the, in, in our professional conferences, in our book reviews, in our, we have a way of assessing each other's work. And we are always disagreeing with each other. But that doesn't mean you throw the whole thing out. It means that it's an ongoing process of refining our arguments and getting, and we will never all end up on the same page but still you can make some really important contributions so that we're having the conversations that we need to be having right now. Okay, we've got about two minutes left and I know there might be one or two things that we didn't cover today. And we've got another session tomorrow. So what I'd like to do is uh, if there's a topic that you want us to try to cover tomorrow, uh, yell it out. And we're not gonna get to everyone, we're not gonna cover every subject, but if you have just, uh, a subject matter that you want us to try to talk about tomorrow in our session, uh, yeah. just say no, and I will actually write that down. So, um, I mean, I'm not going to answer. She was going to answer, just for the record. Yeah, just so, anything. anything. Push back from the Theo Bros. What's that? Push back, Push back from the Theo Bros. Okay. Push. The arts. Say again? The arts. The arts? Can you give a little bit more on that? Like a for or against? <laughs> Okay. The arts, all right. Anyone else? What have you learned from January 6th? All right, January 6th. I'm sure there won't be any issues with that. Okay, next. I come from a state where there's a lot of rewriting of history that our kids are being taught. So what can you do about that? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. How do we address Christian nationalism in our churches? Yeah. These are great, great topics. Okay. What similarities do you see in the 1920s and 30s in German Christianity and what you're seeing today? Yeah. Okay. Gender is a social construct and it's used to maintain power in the church. <laughs> so wait, wait, that's not a question. <laughs>
else? Sir? How the Western translations of the Bible are so influenced by culture, different than the translations in the Middle East? Thank you for uh, what you've done. Thanks, Chris.